Maybe we can say that uh, we're all philosophers of happiness. That in ways that are apparent to us and ways that are not, we have uh, adopted a philosophy of happiness, a philosophy of the good life, of what makes life work. And we're probably conscious of some of those elements of our philosophy and not so aware of others. And part of what we do here in retreat is to uh, look, to see, to actually investigate what is the model of the good life that each of us is working with? Where do we seek our uh, well-being and solace and redemption? And one of the insights that we can have is that um, we have a kind of abiding loyalty to clinging. That uh, there's some hope that clinging can work out. And the tricky part is that it does, it kind of works. (laughs) It kind of works. I was at a, an event at Insight LA in Los Angeles a couple of years ago, and uh, Joseph Goldstein was, was presenting, and uh, he gave a talk and then took some questions. And one, one questioner got up and said, you know, I, I went to one of your talks 10 years ago, and I asked you in front of the group, to sum up the entirety of the Dharma in one sentence. And what you said was, and this is 10 years ago, anything can happen anytime. And then the questioner went on to say, how would you summarize it now? 10 years later, another decade of practice, what would you say? And uh, Joseph said, um, his words were, uh, so the freedom is, is the mind that's not clinging to anything. But we get very mixed messages from the world in a lot of ways. Clinging gets reinforced in a way because it partially works. We're here to honor the part of the heart that is not satisfied by that partial happiness. This is Rumi, love with no object. There's a way of loving not attached to what is loved. Observe how water is with the ground always moving toward the ocean though the ground tries to hold water's foot 
and not let it go. This is how we are with wine and beautiful food, wealth and power, or just a dry piece of bread. We want and we get drunk with wanting, then the headache and bitterness afterward. A love with no object is a true love, all else shadow without substance. Have you seen someone fall in love with his own shadow? That's what we've done. Leave partial loves and find one that's whole. And so maybe we hear this and um, clinging in a way becomes the enemy. But uh, there are no enemies in experience. There's only suffering and freedom from suffering. And so we have to have a kind of um, respect for the depth of, cl- of our clinging. Almost maybe bow to it. My teacher said, um, uh, Shinzen Young said, uh, we, we need to love it to death. Now we come here to um, to practice, to let go, and uh, of course we don't leave our habits behind, right? We maybe could say that the way we practice meditation is the way we do everything else, right? So it's not like we... Uh, just sit down and stop clinging, right? We bring the habit of clinging in various ways into the sitting practice. And so there are various kind of flavors of clinging, right? But uh, some of our favorites are uh, kind of self-harshness and comparing oneself to another, evaluating our experience constantly for marks of improvement. You know, if I'm not careful, I expect each mindful breath to pay dividends. (laughs) I'm, I'm not even joking. You know, I'll take a breath and then I'll it's like I come up and I, like, am I freer? Am I more concentrated? Am I, right? And the Dalai Lama said, you know, check out your practice, evaluate it every five or ten years. Right? So, we cling in the sense of we want it to be pleasant. We want it to be... We want the mind to settle quickly. And uh, the opportunity with, the, with practice is we actually get to see 
clinging. We actually get to see the mechanisms of clinging and how it generates suffering. Because normally in our life, if we think of clinging as a kind of river, it flows pretty freely, right? And here we're actually placing some stones in that river, a few obstructions. We are limiting ourselves in some ways, as Will said. And this is critical because uh, when craving, clinging operates unhindered, when, when our job is just, we're doing everything we can to gratify, um, we actually cannot, it obscures the mechanisms. We can't see how it works. We don't even know that we're clinging. We don't even know that we're, that clinging carries some burden of suffering. So here we actually have the opportunity to study what's happening, how suffering gets built, how we can let go. This is the classic Ajahn Chah quote. Simplify your meditation practice down to just two words, let go. Rather than trying to develop this practice and then develop that and achieve this and go on to that and understand this and read the suttas and study the Abhidhamma and then learn Pali and Sanskrit then the Madhyamaka and the Prajnaparamita, get ordinations in the Hinayana, Mahayana, Vajrayana, write books and become a world-renowned authority on Buddhism. Instead of becoming the world's expert on Buddhism and being invited to great international Buddhist conferences, <laughs> just let go. I did nothing but this for about two years. Every time I tried to understand and figure things out, I'd say, let go, let go, until the desire would fade out. So I'm making it very simple for you to save you from getting caught in incredible amounts of suffering. There's nothing more sorrowful than having to attend international Buddhist conferences. <laughs> uh, some of you might have the desire to become the Buddha of the age, Maitreya, radiating love throughout the world. But instead, I suggest just being an earthworm, letting go of the desire to radiate love throughout the world. Just be an earthworm who only knows two words. Let go, let go, let go. The truth is that it's not even really a choice between holding on and letting go. You know, we all have to let go. About a year ago, um, my dad, who uh, uh, 66 and in his life, he's been uh, very successful, I would say, in clinging. Like it's actually worked out in a, a lot of the ways, right? And so he's been so attached to 
vitality and health to professional accomplishment. And he's had those. But in having those, he for a long time didn't have to look deeply at the necessity of letting go. And it's like it all hit him at one time and it was uh, too much. He got really uh, depressed. And it's since, you know, doing better. Uh, But it's a little bit like we have this opportunity to start to allow the heart to adjust to the necessity of letting go. For me, um, it was really uh, the events of September 11th, 2001. I, I grew up in New York and I wasn't, I was in California at the time, but I grew up there. And, uh, there was something about the magnitude of that uh, horror um, and the suffering of it uh, that it it shattered something for me. And it, it was something like up till that point, I felt like I owned my life. And even though I didn't have a belief in uh, uh, God or higher power necessarily, I, I felt like something was protecting me. And seeing those planes and those buildings uh, woke me up to this, this uh, insight that maybe we could say we don't own our life. So here we're practicing with the little letting goes. Letting go of uh, the sound that's irritating or the you know, minor conditions that are not optimal in one way or another. We're actually practicing these little letting goes so that we can let go more and more deeply in the ways that we're asked, in the ways the world is is begging us to do. Now, um, Ajahn Amaro, another uh, uh, monastic from the Thai forest tradition, uh, said that 80% of the practice is knowing we need to let go and not being able to do it. And after all these years of of practice and uh, meditation, I'm still trying to understand what it means to let go. How that happens, how we nourish the seeds of letting go. So how do we do it? This is an open question for all of us. I don't think it looks the same for everybody. 
but most generally we attend to the anxiety created by clinging. We attend to the peace of letting go. And we cultivate uh, wisdom and equanimity. So Bonnie was talking about this last night. Um, Sometimes people translate the, you know, that desire is the cause of all suffering. The word is tanha. Better translation is craving, but sometimes it gets translated as desire. Um, And that's an unfortunate translation because uh, it's important to distinguish desire from clinging. So one way of thinking about it is that desires can actually be satisfied. Like a desire has an end, but a, a clinging, a craving seeks something that is unobtainable in the object of clinging. The clinging itself makes an unrealistic promise of what we get once we get what we want. So um, Saidao Tejaniya, a Burmese teacher, was asked if you can like something and it and that not be a form of clinging. And he said, uh, when wisdom wants something, there's no agitation, there's no urge to get there immediately. It understands the proximate causes to attain the goal and will steadily work to fulfill them. Wisdom always sees both sides, the good and the bad. It sees things from different perspectives. So in our practice, we can make this distinction between uh, desires, aspirations, intentions, and the feverish quality of craving and clinging. This is, this is what we work with. The Buddha said that, uh, that seeing clinging actually seeing it is critical. And he directed us to four places where clinging occurs. This is different than craving. Craving, he said, um, occurred at the six sense doors, meaning the five senses and the mind. But clinging perhaps is like when craving solidifies, coagulates, becomes more rigid than craving. It's when we start to get our plans. So to what, to what do we cling? Four things. They're big categories though. Sense pleasure. Now, I'm not, uh, I'm not asking for all of us to prefer pain over pleasure. And I'm not dismissive of people who are 
um, in pain, physical pain, or facing significant physical limitations. I'm not casual about that. I'm not saying just let go, just let go. I know that's uh, very significant. And at the same time, we're called to investigate our relationship to pleasure and pain. Our relationship to, you know, the whole, if we piled up all the pleasure we've had in our life, it's a big pile, probably, and it's done something for us, for sure. A life with that pleasure is better than a life without it. But it has not answered the deepest longings of the heart. It's not, a, pleasure is not equivalent to satisfaction. In the moment when we're challenged by some sense object, uh, um, let's just use cookie as an example. The moment there's a sense contact with that, with, with the, the, you know what, let's pick pizza. Pizza is really, <laughs> I'm not really a sweets guy, but pizza, oh. So we see the pizza and there's a part of our mind that, you know, when I see that pizza, I, in, the, in that first moment, I do not see, like, this is going to be tasty, it's pleasure. What, I, what part of my mind sees is the end of seeking. <laughs> if I can get that slice, what's envisioned is not pleasure, actually, but like a the cessation of clinging. It's like my mind makes this huge promise about what I get when I get that slice. But how much can it do? <laughs> how, much, how much can it really do? You know, we think we're like wanting the pleasure, but what we're really longing for is the the end of the craving. The end of the craving. And the Buddha short-circuits the whole process. It's basically, I think he would counsel me to say, Matthew, skip the pizza. <laughs> and go right for the clinging. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, clinging, it has, a, it has a momentum, just as renunciation does, too. So sense pleasure. Uh, views. 
maybe you know that <clears throat> you know that sense when um, uh, maybe here in the hall, maybe at the end of a meditation period, maybe you felt some level of settledness and the bell rings and there's really, there's no internal pressure to uh, say anything, to advance any view, to construct some notion of who we are or what we need or what's right or wrong. You know, it's like the bell rings and we're ve- are, are, there's, there's really, there's very little clinging to view in a way, at least to, to the grosser levels of view. And, uh, you know, in this, in this kind of state, there, there would certainly, even if we were speaking, there would be no need to convince anyone of anything, no need to convince yourself that you're right, just quiet. So Rumi says, uh, uh, out beyond ideas of right doing and wrong doing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to speak about. But that's not how things always are, right? This is... um, from a book called Being Wrong by Catherine Schultz. And it speaks to uh, the depth of our attachment to being right. She says, why is it so fun to be right? As pleasures go, it is, after all, a second order one at best, unlike Many of life's other delights, chocolate, surfing, kissing, it doesn't enjoy any mainline access to our biochemistry. And yet the thrill of being right is undeniable, universal, and almost entirely undiscriminating. We can't enjoy kissing just anyone, but we can relish being right about almost anything. Our indiscriminate enjoyment of being right is matched by an almost equally indiscriminate feeling that we are right. (laughs) Most of us go through life assuming that we're basically right basically all the time about basically everything. (laughs) As absurd as it sounds when we stop to think about it, our steady state seems to be one of unconsciously assuming that we are very close to omniscient, all-knowing. If we relish being right and regard it as our natural state, you can guess how we feel about being wrong. For one, we tend to view it as rare and bizarre. For another, it leaves us feeling ashamed. Of all the things we're wrong about, this idea of error might well top the list. It is our meta mistake, M-E-T-A. We are wrong about what it means to be wrong. Far from being a sign of intellectual inferiority, the capacity to err is crucial to human cognition. 
far from being a moral flaw, it is inextricable from some of our most humane and honorable qualities. And far from being a mark of indifference or intolerance, wrongness is a vital part of how we learn and change. Thanks to error, we can revise our understanding of ourselves and amend our ideas about the world. However disorienting, difficult, or humbling mistakes might be, it is ultimately wrongness, not rightness, that can teach us who we are. So much of the Dharma is about revising the view. So much of it is about not feeling badly or ashamed of our confusion and suffering. So much of our growth in the Dharma is the willingness to let go of our outmoded views of ourself, of what our problems are, of what the solutions are, of what the Dharma is. That's the amazing part about the Dharma is that we keep, uh, we sort of get comfortable in a particular view, in a particular relationship to the Dharma and we get kind of cozy there and we start to make that uh, our ground. And then something opens up. Maybe it's difficult, maybe it's beautiful, but something opens up and we have to let go. We have to let go of that view. We have to let go of ideas of who we are. And we can do this in a gentle way. We can actually learn to take some delight in this kind of learning, this kind of humbling. The Dharma, this practice is definitely humbling, but it doesn't have to be humiliated. Oscar Wilde put it more succinctly, He said, the secret of life is to appreciate the pleasure of being terribly, terribly deceived. And we are deceived. We're purifying the view, clarifying. And that means a willingness to let go. Sense pleasure, views, conventions. So much of our lives seem, and like our habits and the way we do things in this country, in this culture, in whatever culture you're in, it, when we, we get kind of used to that and 
it all seems so natural how we do things, even down to the smallest thing. And you, maybe it's most apparent in, you know, in uh, intimate relationships when one person has a view of like, no, the toothpaste goes here. Like that's obvious. That is its natural home on the right side, not the left. But so much of we, what we take to be uh, na- these like natural, undisputed ways of doing things that are independent of our cultural history and space and time, uh, not so, right? It's like all we have to do is travel or meet somebody who does things differently to see how, you know, I sort of see how idiosyncratic my life is. And these conventions, it's not, it's not little things. It's, it's a lot about our lives that we actually think are, have some ground that we think uh, we sort of fail to see the dependent arising of all of these conventions, the ways in which they're, uh, they're born out of a million conditions. But nevertheless, we cling. As I was preparing this talk, the, uh, what came to mind was the uh, debates around uh, gay marriage. And when I listened to that and I listened to, to opposition to marriage equality, so much of what I hear, when you actually get down to the bare bones of the argument, the objection, it's something like, but this is how we've done it, you know? This is like, and that, and clinging to that convention actually obscures what's right in front of our face, which may be two people who love each other. So as we practice, we look to see the ways in which uh, the habits and conventions uh, structure our life and how we can relax, loosen up around all of these uh, attachment in this way. And so the last uh, category is uh, clinging to self-view. And this is, I'll, I'll just say a, a couple words about this, but this is at the heart of the Dharma, uh, maybe subsumes the other three clingings, is the overarching factor that 
sense pleasure and views and convent attachment to conventions all depends in a way on self clinging and we'll say much more about this as the retreat unfolds but um, the Buddha's uh, suggestion was um, a summary teaching was nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I or mine. And we can put down all of the philosophical questions about uh, is there a self, is there no self. That, that um, I would say, is, is, gets us into a, uh, to use one of the phrases from the suttas, a thicket of views. Self is an experience and not self is an experience. And two experiences don't contradict each other. We're learning to unburden the view of the sense of I amness. And self-clinging arises in many different ways, in different layers, different levels of subtlety. But uh, it always complicates our lives. Taking ourself to be something always complicates our lives. Having a list of what we are and what we're not complicates our lives. And the self anyway, this like thing that we're, it's like a leaky ship we're trying to hold together. This ramshackle shed kind of. And uh, there's no home there. We're trying to make a home there, but there's no home there. All of my self, not self stories are embarrassing. <laughs> but I'll share one. Uh, I was at this, this really is, <laughs> this is good. <laughs> I was at this group and um, uh, teaching a meditation class, mindfulness class. And uh, it was one of these classes where they, they, uh, they read your bio before you talk. And uh, on paper, I sound pretty good. <laughs> so, and it kind of went on and so, you know. Anyway, so they introduced me and, uh, you know, uh, Matthew Brent Silver, PhD, you know, does research at this university or is taught at these places or uh, it sounded like I really had it together. But on this day, I had actually managed to show up to teach a Dharma class 
with my zipper down. <laughs> Which is like the archetypal non-mindfulness <laughs> symbol, you know. We can only look good on paper. So we start to see the burden of carrying this. You know, we actually really feel the burden. And it becomes more and more natural uh, to put it down, to put down the view. We actually start to see um, that this view fails to acknowledge that we are made of impermanence. If we're anything, we're, we are anicca, impermanence. And that artificial attempt to kind of um, pitch, a kind of make camp somewhere, create ground somewhere, within the flow of experience um, complicates our life. So we'll say more about this as, as we go on. So in letting go, uh, we can recognize that some of these habits of clinging, it said, are written in water, some in sand, and some in granite. And sometimes just looking at it, or just one breath, and we can let go. Just that, just seeing clinging, and maybe seeding the mind with some teaching, wisdom teaching from the Buddha. Maybe that's enough. The Buddha said in, in the uh, middle-length discourses, whatever is not yours, let go of it. Your letting go of it will be for your long-term happiness and benefit. And then he asks, and what is not yours? The answer, of course, is everything. So sometimes it's easy to let go. Sometimes we just remind ourselves of the burden of clinging. But sometimes it's not like that. One of my teachers, Gil Franzdahl, said that uh, we can't be in a rush to let go. We can't be in a rush to let go. And with some of these deeper forms of clinging, uh, what we're doing here is actually planting seeds. Planting seeds, weakening attachment, conditioning our minds so that letting go will come more naturally. 
some of this has to do with our sila, with our conduct, that as we uh, are more and more careful in our conduct, as we more and more deeply honor the commitment to non-harming, as we start to sense in our own heart that there is something that very deeply wishes not to harm, as we sense this, and as our life begins to align with our heart's own intention towards harmlessness, it simplifies our life. It actually creates fewer and fewer places where clinging can arise as our conduct becomes more and more uh, consistent. Now, clinging is a, it's a moment of pain, really. And the Buddha said that there are four things we could do when we're in pain. Uh, blame yourself. Blame others. Despair. Or investigate. The answer is D. Right? So what is what is cling at its at its atomic level? What is it? In the Buddha's um, teachings on dependent origination the mechanisms through which suffering is produced, uh, there's a, a key link between uh, Vedana, Tanha, Upadana. Feeling, feeling tone, craving, clinging. And so we could say that if there were no Vedana, if there were no feeling tone, there would be no clinging. But it's, uh, we generally cannot short circuit the arising of Vedana. But we do have an opportunity actually to work with the craving and clinging that follows. And Vedana gets talked about in a lot of different ways. And, uh, and the way that I've found most useful is not the classical way, but I'll share it. Because it has been maybe, maybe the most important thing in my practice. Uh, which is that the body is emotionally responsive. That if we hear a loud noise or if we, our heart is breaking or if we're uh, blissed out, there's a fingerprint in the body. There's a kind of, in the, we maybe say emotional body and it's often along the front axis of the body, in the face, throat, chest, belly. and no doubt related in ways to our peripheral nervous system. 
But we can actually sense like there is a presence of feeling of emotion in the body. And to meet clinging effectively means that we have to meet this kind of feeling in the body effectively. That we need to bring a kind of equanimity and love to this feeling which if it could speak would say, get me that thing and I'll leave you alone. You know, if our body could speak, that's what the clinging would say. So we're actually learning to bring equanimity, sense of ease and relaxation, of openness, of non-interference with this experience in the body. And it's tricky because when we're in the middle of intense feeling, it, it feels very much like we're being um, buffeted by very strong winds. And what we're here to learn is that even in those strong winds, uh, there's nothing that can be blown over. It feels like the winds can do damage, that they can blow something over in us. You know, you have those images maybe of a palm tree in the middle of a hurricane in Florida and the tree is arched over and it really could break. It could be blown over. And our feeling life, it seems like that. It seems like something inside us is going to break. And some of what we're here to learn is that, that nothing will be blown over. That mindfulness makes our inner life safe. That if we can keep one foot in mindfulness, it, it makes our inner life safe. The winds can blow in whatever direction they blow, but they, they won't blow anything over. We actually have to develop a confidence that that's so. That's not something we can just hear and believe. We have to develop a confidence and awareness. In the act of clinging, the mind is reaching out to phenomena. As we sit, as we walk, as we go about our day, we're learning to stay settled, settled back in awareness. 
And instead of reaching out to always touch and manipulate the world, we let the world touch us. We let experience touch us. We let the sights touch the eyes, the sounds touch the ears, sensations touch the body. We allow ourselves to be moved by that. And rather than the mind reaching out, we become uh, more and more stable, receptive, willing to be touched by the world, which is touching us all the time. Instead of fixating self and other and world, we start to rest into the awareness. And at the level of awareness, All there is, is experience. Our life is just experience. It looks like there's a world, but that's just seeing and touching and smelling. So we're starting to settle back. Let the world come to us. Let the world come into being in awareness. And as we do this, we're beginning to to let go into impermanence, into anicca, in a way to make anicca our home. And it's like Anicca has an undertow. You know, at the beach, you're like standing and you can feel the, whatever, the, some layer of water and sand that's like pulling. And Anicca has an undertow like that. And we let Anicca actually pull more and more of who we think we are and what we think is all of our views, we let Anicca pull more and more in that, of that under into its flow. Until we're no longer standing outside the f- flow of Anicca, but we are that. We surrender to it uh, to be uh, maybe uh, like reborn as a part of nature. When we make a Nietzsche our home, we are reborn as a part of nature, although nature, we know ourselves as nature, not separate from nature. Self-view takes us out and creates this perspective of like a, a God's eye view that's outside nature. And we're surrendering, we're letting go into a Nietzsche. More and more the ground of self gets surrendered into a Nietzsche. We let go.
Now, as we practice with our clinging during this week, we uh, sometimes nothing's going to work. Sometimes we're going to try everything. We're going to try to work with it every way. We're going to try to meet it with love, with wisdom, try to investigate, try to do everything you've heard the other teachers asking, everything I've suggested. We're going to try everything and nothing's going to work. And in those moments, uh, sometimes we can take the opportunity actually to, and this is a kind of, it's it's difficult and beautiful, but we actually take the opportunity to experience helplessness. which in the human repertoire is about at the bottom of the list in terms of favorites, right? But we actually take take that opportunity to experience helplessness. But for a reason. Because that when we meet helplessness in that way, when we've done everything we can and we can't do it, we can meet that with a little bit of awareness and love, that helplessness becomes a very deep seed of motivation to practice, to free the heart more and more. That helplessness becomes a teaching on the necessity of compassion for ourselves and for others. This is Rumi again. Gamble everything for love if you are a true human being. Half-heartedness doesn't reach into majesty. You set out to find God, but then you keep stopping for long periods at mean-spirited roadhouses. Don't wait any longer. Dive in the ocean. Leave and let the sea be you. Silent, absent, walking an empty road, all praise. Let's just sit for a moment.
the best part of teaching is the view. May we uh, all be free from suffering.